Uh, why don't you grab a Bible? If you have one, if you don't have one, no worries. Um, we're going to put uh, every verse up on the screens for you to follow along, but go to John chapter 11. And while you're doing that, let me welcome all of those who are watching online today. Can we welcome those doing church online with us today? And uh, we welcome you. Happy Easter, our, our house campus and college station. We welcome you. So glad that you're with us today. Uh, John chapter 11. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you the title that I am working from today. I called this message Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones. Some of you immediately had flashbacks. Um, that's okay. I asked the worship team if they would consider starting out the set with Start Me Up. Um, they were unwilling to comply as they felt like it would work against Easter. And, and unfortunately, I had to agree with them. But rolling, rolling stones is what I want to share um, from John chapter 11. Uh, what's going on in John chapter 11? Well, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He upset some people by saying that he was the son of God. They threatened to stone him or arrest him. And he got out of town. He, he goes to the east, to the Jordan, where John had baptized him near the Dead Sea. And he is hanging out there, chilling out, relaxing, maxing all cool with the Fresh Prince. Um, and he gets a Snapchat message from some friends of his, uh, Mary and Martha, who say, hey, your friend Lazarus, whom you love is sick, and we think he may die from it. And the Bible says, now Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, so when he got the message, he waited two more days. Does anyone else find that strange? I don't have time to preach it, but I just want to say this, that if you feel like you're waiting on God, it's probably because he loves you so much. <laughs> and so, so we need to understand also that these were not acquaintances of Jesus. When it says that he loved them, this is uh, the, the root of this. There are five Greek words for love. The, the strongest is agape, which is a sacrificial, unconditional God kind of love. And this love is actually, the root of it is that word agape. So this is an intense, fierce love. And these are not just acquaintances. These are people that he hung out with. Bethany is located about a mile and a half east of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And many times the Bible says at night, Jesus would withdraw to the Mount of Olives and most people believe that he was staying with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so these are, these are like family friends. These are not acquaintances. And they send him a message and say, the one you love is sick. He waits two more days. And then he's like, okay, boys, now we're going to head to Bethany. At this point, he was about 20 miles from them, about 21, 22 miles from Jerusalem. And they head west now towards Bethany. But the disciples are like, hang out. Well, Jesus, just a minute. The people in Jerusalem don't like us. If we head back to Bethany, we are like in a suburb of Jerusalem. Somebody could hear and they could come back and finish what they were wanting to start earlier, which is to stone you. And I don't know that they're worried about him, them stoning Jesus. I think they're worried about one of those those rocks hitting them, right? And, and Jesus said, well, Lazarus, our friend, is asleep. And they said, if he's asleep, then just Amazon Prime him an alarm clock, right? And, and, and let's just hang out here. And he said, no, he's dead. And I'm glad he's dead for your sakes. Crazy things Jesus said. I'm glad he's dead so I can teach you a lesson. That's weird. Anyways, and so they head to Bethany. When they get to Bethany, they see a line of camels all painted black. There's your stone reference right there. And, um, and, so, and so Martha comes out to meet Jesus. 
And that's where we're going to take up the text in, in verse 17. It says, on his arrival. Now, I'm going to read a lot of scripture, so I'm just going to warn you. I'm not going to apologize for reading a lot of scripture because we are in church, right? And it is Resurrection Weekend, and, and you should not apologize for reading the Word of God in church. It, it can tell you a lot more than, than I can. And also, the good thing is, if you missed a devotional time this week, I'm about to catch you up, okay? And so, John 11, verse 17, it says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Now, we know Martha and Mary from the dinner party where Martha became indignant because Mary wouldn't get up and help her with the hors d'oeuvres. Do, do you remember this, right? And so I think it is greatly congruent with her personality that she hears Jesus is here four days late, and she's like, oh, I'm not on him. I'm going to have words with Jesus, Martha. Verse 21, so Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You, you can't always get what you want. Stone's reference for you right there. But you can get what you need. All right. And so, and so, but she said, but I know now that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said, your brother will rise. And she said, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, I am. Here's, here's the statement, the fifth of seven I am statements of Christ. I am. This is the revelation of which we are celebrating today. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I think that is a question that he asked all of us. Do we believe that? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Messiah, the son of God who has come into the world. And after she said this, she went back to call her sister Mary. And she said, the teacher is here and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to meet him. And now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still in a place where he had met Martha. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. I love that because this, this Mary, there, is, there are other Marys in the Bible, obviously, but this Mary is mentioned in the, in the Gospels three times, and every time she is at the feet of Jesus. She is at the feet of Jesus when she washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. She at the dinner party when, when it's a party and everything is great and Jesus is in the house and they're having good food. She is at the feet of Jesus. And now on her darkest day, again, she falls at the feet of Jesus. And I just wonder if maybe it was so easy for her to fall at the feet of Jesus on her darkest day because she had a practice of living at the feet of Jesus on her good days. And so she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Two sisters, they say the same thing. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, come see. And then Jesus wept. And the Jews said, oh, see how he loved him. And then some said, but hey, if this is the guy that opened the blind eyes, couldn't he have done something for his dying friend? And Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. And it was a grave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone. Roll the stone away. This is where my title comes from. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by now, and, and I'm going to throw you back old King James, by now he stinketh. 
Because I think that's more pungent than odor. Stinketh. I don't know if it's the TH on the end or the way that I was raised hearing that, but by now he stinketh, stinketh right? He, he stinketh. Have you ever been to a high school locker room where teenage boys... You understand stinketh at this point, right? And he said, by now, he, he stinketh because he's been in the tomb four days. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they would believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, I, I like... I like what one of the early church fathers, um, Augustine or Augustine, whichever way you like to pronounce it, said. He, he said that had Jesus not used this proper noun of Lazarus and had just gone to come out, that he supposed the power of the resurrection was so great that it would have emptied every tomb in the graveyard. And I kind of like that picture when we're talking about, it would have been like the walking dead in reverse or something, like the walking live, you know, or, or Ghostbusters in reverse. I don't know. But anyways, I, I just, I like that. Lazarus come out and it says the dead man came out and his hands and feet were, were wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him, let him go. Rolling stones. Can, can we pray together? Father, thank you so much for your grace and your word and what today is all about. God, that Jesus is alive and he is still making us alive. He is still bringing the dead back to life again. And God, I pray in, 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 in our lives today, if there is any dead place, God, that today we would allow the power of the resurrection to invade our lives. So Lord, now as we, as we dive into your word together, let your word penetrate our hearts in a way that transforms us and brings us to faith and causes us to see your glory as never before in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, three things that I want to pull out of this text um, and if you want to take notes, you can write these down. I do think you get bonus points in heaven for taking notes on, on Easter. <laughs> but three things. The first one is this, is that God is more concerned about giving revelation than meeting expectation. God is more concerned about giving revelation than meeting expectation. The way the story starts off is... Jesus has some dear friends. One of them falls very ill and is about to die. And they send a, a message to Jesus to say, the one whom you love is sick. They sent that message based on an expectation. Um, if you think about it, these are people who believed in Jesus. I mean, even Martha says, yes, I believe you're the Messiah, the one sent from God into the world. And so it doesn't seem strange that because she understood probably two things about Jesus at this point, her revelation was that Jesus loved them, loved Lazarus, because she said, Lord, the people you love are in trouble. But also, this is towards the end of Jesus' ministry. This is probably within six months of him going to the cross. And, and so she, at this point, would have had a revelation that he does a lot of miracles. That he, she probably has witnessed miracles. She probably has, has heard the testimony of all the miracles that Jesus has performed. And so it isn't strange that based on her current revelation, that Jesus loves them and that Jesus heals, that she would have an expectation that if she's sent him a message that he would come quickly, like he would mount up on a camel with a hemi and head to them and that he would do something to help them. 
I mean, isn't that really what faith should produce in our hearts is expectation? I mean, there's nothing wrong with Mary and Martha's expectation, is there really? I mean, they, they have this revelation, Jesus, the Son of God, who is the healer who has come into the world. Surely, and, and Jesus loves him, surely if we send him a message, he will get here and he will heal Lazarus. That's their expectation. But now when Jesus gets there, they're in extreme disappointment. Why are they disappointed? The same reason most people are disappointed when it comes to relationships of any kind, and that is unmet expectations. They're disappointed because Jesus didn't move fast enough, because he didn't come soon enough. They're disappointed because he didn't meet their expectation. They had faith, and that faith produced expectation. And now they are dealing with unmet expectation and faith that is waning or dying. I know we don't want to get real on Easter. We're in our Easter duds and we're, we're eating our chocolate bunnies. But I would be willing to just imagine that there are probably some people today who have struggled with the idea or the fact that God didn't meet your expectations sometimes. Now, I know we would never be honest about this, so I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people that have come in the other worship experiences and are yet to come. And those are the people that are struggling today. We are praying for them. But just so we can track along with what may be going on in their lives, isn't it safe to say that if you follow Jesus any period of time, at some point you may struggle with the disappointment of unmet expectations? The disciples did because the disciples were planning on Jesus to, to, to establish his kingdom on the earth. And they were going to be like the knights of the round table. They were the precursor to Camelot. They're thinking, we're going to be the Lord of the realms, right? And, so, and, and then Jesus doesn't do it that way. Mary and Martha are disappointed now. He didn't do it that way. What about the people on Palm Sunday who throw Jesus a parade and they're putting palm branches out in the streets and they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're thinking that Jesus is going to come and he's going to establish the, the, the reign of the kingdom of Israel and, and, and free them from being under Roman government. And then the one they celebrate who has come to liberate them in seven days, dies between two thieves on a cross. Probably disappointed. What about John the Baptist? John the Baptist who grew up with Jesus. They were just six months apart, John the Baptist. Like cousins, like in the same family. Like, like celebrated all the feast together. Like, like John who probably saw Jesus walk across a mud puddle. Right? Like John, why are you always getting in the mud puddle? Jesus never gets in. Just because he walks across the mud puddle. John, whose puppy got hit by a camel and Jesus healed it. That John. John, who said, behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, who baptized Jesus and saw the Holy Spirit descend on him. That John is now in prison because some girl won some twisted version of Dancing with the Stars. Instead of asking for prize money, she tells King Herod she wants the head of John the Baptist. And now John is about to be executed for two reasons. He told the truth that God told him to proclaim and some girl could dance. Not the way he saw his life coming to an end, I'm sure. 
And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and asks the question that if we're being honest today, we have been tempted to ask if we have not already asked when God has failed to meet our expectations. And that is, are you really him or should we look around for somebody else? John the Baptist asked Jesus, essentially, are you Jesus? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Now, there are seven signs of the Messiah that John would have been aware of. And Jesus answers John by by sending a message to him saying, I am him because, and he lists six of the seven signs of Messiah. The one that he left out is that he'll free the captives. And then he goes on to say, blessed are those who aren't offended, who don't lose heart because I didn't meet their expectations. He basically tells John, I'm not going to be able to meet your expectation, but blessed are those who don't lose faith when I'm unable to meet their expectations. Here we have Mary and Martha probably losing faith, probably lost some faith because God, Jesus, didn't meet their expectations expectations. And the danger is, the danger is that when my faith is anchored in my expectation, it's kind of a paradox, is it really? I mean, I mean, faith should produce expectation. If faith doesn't produce expectation, you would, you would argue that maybe there is no faith. Like if we really believe God, it produces some expectation in our hearts. We are all here today celebrating expectation that we will, that we will rise with Christ, that we have risen in the spirit and we will be resurrected in the body, that, that the grave is not going to be the end. That's our expectation based on our revelation. And so if we have faith, then we should have an expectation. But it's kind of interesting that faith produces expectation, but unmet expectation seems to work against faith. And so here they are, they have come to the end of their faith because they are past their expectation. And is it that where where we all land at some point, that if our expectation is unmet, we are tempted to curtail or or to pull back our faith and to not believe or not trust because God didn't come through, so I'm not gonna step out there again, I'm not gonna try this again, and we are tempted to actually decrease our trust in God, and the problem is without faith it's impossible to please God, and so we can't live the life that God has called us to live, a life of power and purpose, a life that transcends the limitations of this world, world. We can't live that life by shrinking down or minimizing or, 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 or decreasing our faith. But yet when we're met and we're staring in the face an unmet expectation where we had faith and God didn't come through, that's the very thing we're tempted to do. Because we think like Mary and Martha many times that where the unexpectation wasn't, where, where the expectation wasn't met, we think that's the end of the story. They thought the story was over. Jesus thought it was just beginning. See, their expectation was based on yesterday's revelation. Jesus didn't meet their expectation, not because he didn't want to, not because he didn't love them, but because he was coming to give them and us a new revelation. And if we're not careful, we, we will think the story ends 
where God is still trying to show us something. That at the end of our unmet expectation, many times is where God starts a new revelation. Because Jesus shows up to Martha, who she feels like it's the end. She's putting a the end. She's rolling the credits, if you will. And Jesus is like, hang on, hang on. Verse 25, the apex of this, of this passage. I am, Jesus says, the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, even though he's dead, he will live. And what Jesus is saying is, yesterday's revelation wasn't enough for what I want to do today. And because your faith, here's the secret, when we, when we anchor our faith in an expectation of God's performance instead of a revelation of his person, we open ourselves to missing all that God wants to do in our lives. And so God is not wanting us just to anchor our faith in an expectation. Yes, if we have faith, we should have expectation. But if that expectation goes unmet, that doesn't mean that God is finished. That means that God may just be starting a new layer of revelation for us to trust and a new way for us to know him and a new way for us to see him and a way for us to experience his glory as never before. And that is really the secret, is it, of not losing heart and disappointment is understanding that while faith produces expectation, my faith isn't anchored in the expectation of his performance. It has to be anchored in the revelation of his person. And for me to maintain that, then I have to grow in an increasing revelation of his person. And that God cannot always meet our expectation, but he loves so much to bring us revelation of who he is. That's why he sent Jesus to reveal himself to us. Jesus told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, or we could say resurrected life, that you would know God and Jesus Christ. In other words, he said, this is, this is resurrection life, that you would know God through Jesus, that, that God is focused on bringing you revelation. And even though you may have unmet expectations, that doesn't mean God is finished. It means that God has more to show you. He is more concerned about revelation than expectation. Here's the second thing, is that we can't confuse the uncertainty of his plan with the uncertainty of his passion, or with an uncertainty of his passion. We can't confuse, what does that mean? Let me, let me put it this way. Isn't it true that, that many times we are tempted to filter our understanding of God's love through the situation and circumstances that we have faced and are facing? Because if you think about it, the, the, it starts, the one who you love, Jesus is sick. Now Jesus loved Martha Mary. And isn't it true sometimes that, that we say, well, wait a second. If you loved me, why would you wait two days? And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll let the fact that his plan seems unsettled communicate to us that maybe his love for us is also not settled. And that somehow we will evaluate his love for us based on what we feel like he is or isn't doing in our lives. It's almost like we, we start letting, letting our concept and understanding of his love fluctuate with how difficult we feel like our life is at the moment. 
if things are going well, God must love us. And if they're not going well, maybe he does. Am I helping you at all? Because maybe, maybe it's just me, but I'm having a great time because I probably needed this. But is that not true with how we do sometimes? Like, well, God, if you really love me, this wouldn't have happened. If you really love me, you would have been here sooner. If you really love me, you would have moved faster. And sometimes, sometimes when, when God's plan seems uncertain, we become uncertain that God loves us as much as we thought he did. And what I love about this passage is it shows us something else. And so I want to look at verse 33 of John chapter 11, but I'm going to change versions to the new living translation um, because this pulls something out that the others don't, which I think is accurate. And so John 11, 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing, this is Mary, he said, look at this, a deep anger welled up within him. Now the other versions will say he was troubled in spirit. And he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? And they said, Lord, come see. And Jesus wept and, and they were standing and they said how much he loved him. And if this man healed the blind, couldn't he have helped, did something for Lazarus. And then verse 38, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across his entrance. I kind of like the idea of Jesus being angry. Because every movie that depicts him has has some hippie-looking dude with, with flowing locks and, and a completely perfectly manicured beard in, in, in a robe who is Gandhi-esque with Birkenstocks saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And, and I don't know about you, but I like Jesus. I like the idea that maybe he's a little more savage than that. I like throwing people out of the temple, Jesus, turning over tables, Jesus, right? Jesus, who is like sticking it to the religious people, Jesus, like the Jesus we see in Revelation, who is tatted up and has a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's got some sword coming out of his mouth and fire in his eyes. And he's riding a horse, Jesus. I like Jesus that, that is amped up, that, that is angry sometimes, not just floating around like he doesn't care. I like to see some passion in my Jesus. Are you with me? I kind of like the idea that he was angry, but then we have to ask the question, but why was he so angry? And so I read a lot of commentaries because when I read this, I thought, I never really noticed Jesus. Like I knew troubled in spirit um, and there could be a lot of things, but, but I wanted to research what did it mean that Jesus was angry? And one thing I learned is some people should not be allowed to write commentaries because <laughs> I don't think they know Jesus at all <laughs> because they said things like, like, oh, he was angry because they didn't have faith. That's stupid. It's not congruent with who Jesus is as a person. Yeah, he would lose it with some religious people because they wanted to trust in their own righteousness instead of trusting on him. Yeah, he would lo lose it with the people changing, the money changers who were taking advantage of people in the temple in the name of God. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he got a few, he miffed a few times at the disciples when they weren't paying attention to what was going on. But, but you don't see Jesus getting angry with people over the issue of faith especially something they didn't know to believe in because he's about to reveal that he's the resurrection and the life. He hadn't revealed. So how could he hold them accountable for a revelation that there was no way for them to really have? Remember the, the, the man with the demon-possessed son that comes, uh, he, he brings them to the disciples and they couldn't free him. And then Jesus, he brings him to Jesus and he says, I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't help him. But, but could you do anything? And Jesus said, if you can believe all things are possible. You remember that? And then the man said something very honest. He said, I believe, but help my unbelief. I mean, it is an admission that he is struggling in faith. And Jesus didn't say, Phew. 
Forget that. This word anger, it only, a few, it only appears a few times in the New Testament, and, and it means vexed, like passionate, extremely angry, like deep emotion, right? Uh, the word picture it gave, this cracked me up. The word picture it gave was the snort of a horse. Now, I don't know a lot about horses, but I know after studying this word and seeing the type of anger and the degree of emotion that, that this word expresses, that if I ever am around a horse that snorts, your boy is gone. <laughs> so it's angry, but you don't see Jesus getting angry at this man when he says, I'm struggling to believe. He actually liberates his son. And so I don't think that Jesus is crying because they don't believe. And I don't think that Jesus is angry because they don't believe. I don't think that's congruent with his nature and character at all. And so finally, I found some commentaries of some saved people (laughs) who obviously knew who the Holy Spirit was and listened to him because what they verified is what I felt. And that is this, that Jesus was angry at the effects of death and what it had caused to his friends. That he was angry when he saw their pain. That he was troubled when he saw their suffering. That he was angry when he came to grips visually and in the moment of knowing that Lazarus had had suffered and died and been buried. That he became angry about, even though, now think about this, think about this. He could have healed him. He could have come sooner. He knows he's going to raise him. Yet in the middle, between the unmet expectation and what the revelation was he was still bringing them, in the middle, he was still greatly touched Hebrews 4 says our high priest can be touched by the infirmities, by the weaknesses that touch our soul. That he was touched by the emotion and the pain and the suffering that they were going through, even though he knew he could have done something and was going to do something. And that kind of testifies to me that between what I thought God should have done and what God is currently working on, he has not abandoned or left me alone. He is not apathetic or uncaring, but that he is right there in the middle and he is angry at how death is trying to come against my life and he is angry at how death is trying to work his way into my life whether whether it's my emotions or my health or my finances he is angry at death that he is passionate and although his plan seems uncertain his passion never is like like if you want if you want proof look at this psalm 56 verse 8 This is what David says in one of his moments, if you will, where it seems a little uncertain. He says, you keep track of all my sorrows. Talking to God, look at this. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Does that sound like an apathetic, uncaring, disinterested God to you? And what I'm telling you is even though, even though you may be stuck in the middle between what you feel like God didn't do and what you're unsure that God's going to do, I want you to know God is still very much interested in you and he is passionately pursuing you and he is engaged and involved in your life, whether you feel like it or not, that that those prayers and tears don't fall on deaf ears. 
that even if his plan seems uncertain, his passion never is. Here's the last thing. God won't move in your life until you move what's in his way. You know, what's interesting is I always think when you find a, a tension in a text, you find a good sermon. We have a communications team, and sometimes I'm like, look for the tensions. Look for that, just that rub in there. And, and what I think is interesting is that when, when Jesus shows up in verse 21, Martha meets him and says, if you'd have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. But then she says, but I know even now, whatever you ask, God will do for you. Then she goes on to say, I know that you're the Messiah, the one sent from God come into the world. Those all sound like really good faith confessions. But isn't it interesting? Now Jesus gets to the tomb and he looks at them and says, roll away the stone. And the woman who said, I believe that anything you ask, God will give you, jumps in front of the stone and says, no, he's stinking. <laughs> isn't that interesting to you? Because here's what I'm saying. Had she really believed what she initially said, you're the Messiah coming to the world and whatever God, whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Then when Jesus showed up at the, at the cemetery, if you will, and said, roll away the stone, she would have said, hold up, y'all. Get your, get, your, get your chair and your popcorn. It's about, Jesus about to do something right here. But instead, she throws herself in front of the stone like, don't move, don't move the stone. And that tells me that what she said earlier, she didn't really believe it was just what we would call a religious platitude. You know, those things that we say with our minds when we want to deflect away from the pain in our hearts. The things people post on our wall when we lose our job or when something happens in our family and, you know, well, brother, you know, all things work together for good. Mm, you know, or, 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 you know, brother, God's in control. He's my co-pilot. Or, you know, God won't give you more than you can bear. By the way, not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Not in the Bible. You know, brother, God never shuts a door that he doesn't open the window. I'm going to throw you out the window. That's not in the Bible. And so there's some things sometimes that we say, listen to me. Because we know the right thing to say, even when we have no intention of allowing our heart to believe it. Because isn't it true that faith is a little bit vulnerable? It can be a little bit fragile at times. Oh, come on. I know it's Easter, but we're still real people. And sometimes when we have believed and we have struggled to believe, and things didn't work out just right, sometimes it can be hard to open up our hearts again and believe again and trust again. And I think in this text, we find out that the stone to Martha is a lot more than a rock. Because, see, Martha came to what she thought was the end where God didn't do it, and now she's buried it. And, if, and it, now she's faced with, if I have to move that stone, then that means I have to open my heart up again to believe, 
to trust, to risk. And it's scary because I already tried to believe and I already tried to have faith and God didn't do it the way I thought he should have done it. And now it's just easier to distance myself from that kind of faith and belief and, and to not set myself up or run the risk of any type of disappointment. And as long as I can keep that rock in front of that grave, then I can keep buried that past pain and that past disappointment and all that discouragement. And I can just try to move forward with what I have left. But Jesus comes to them and says, no, 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 no. It's not over yet. And I know you buried it and I know it's scary to roll that tomb because you don't know what we're going to find behind it and you're not sure what I can even do with it. But he's saying, if you'll roll away the stone, I'll show you resurrection life and power. Isn't it interesting that he asked them to roll away the stone? Because don't you think Jesus could have rolled away the stone? Could he have not called an angel to roll away the stone? Remember in Matthew 28, at Jesus' resurrection, right? On, on resurrection morning, Mary and Martha and Salome are bringing spices to, to anoint his body. With. They, they were the original Spice Girls. They are bringing spices to anoint his body. And they're saying, who's going to roll? Who's going to move the stone? Who's going to move the stone? And they get there to find out there had been an earthquake and God had sent an angel to move the stone and the stone was sitting on top of the, on top of, or the, the angel was sitting on top of the tomb. Now, why is it that God would move that stone, but Jesus wanted them to move Lazarus stone? Because God said, I'll move my stone, but you'll have to move your stone. If it's mine, I'll move it. But if it's yours, all the greatest works and miracles that I do always come in partnership. Remember, Jesus is not going to barge his way into your life. He's going to stand at the door and knock. And so here he is knocking on the door of dead disappointments and pain and discouragement and hurt. And he's saying, this is not a tombstone. This stone is not here to keep Lazarus in. This stone is here to protect you from having to believe and having to trust and having to put your faith in me. But I'm telling you right now, what you have buried, I am not finished with. And that to me is what Easter is about. It's about rolling stones. It is about rolling the stones out of the places in our life where we have buried something that God is not finished with yet. Whether it is a plan or a purpose or a business or relationship, it's our destiny or our finances or our health. Resurrection life has come. And he is saying, if you roll away the stone and let me gain access to what you think stinks, I can bring it back to life again. And that is the question for us this weekend. Will you roll away the stone in your own heart? Will you trust again? Will you believe again? Will you take on the fragileness and the vulnerability of faith and say, God, you are able and I believe you rose from the dead and there is nothing impossible and I don't want to keep you from any dead thing in my life, whether it's my relationship with you or whether it's my faith as it is or whether it's a circumstance or situation. You are resurrection. You are life. I'll roll away my stone and I'll just see and trust that I'll know your glory in a way that I've never known it. Come on, somebody. Will you roll away your stone this morning? Why don't you, why don't you stand with me?